We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Here's Scott Thompson. Oh, man. I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing. We may have to drop this portion of the feature of the show. All right. Uh, good afternoon. It is 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CEPL in London. I'm Scott Thompson. Welcome to the show. Uh, Matt Taylor on the board, spinning the stars on 45. Poor boy wasn't probably even alive here, uh, then. 1981. 1981. Stars on 45 uh, went to number one in North America. A medley of Beatles songs. We didn't get there. It just goes and goes and goes. All set to a disco beat. It started a flood of stars on hits, including uh, Stevie Wonder, Motown stuff with Diana Ross, uh, Jazz and Dave, punk songs, whatever. There's a stars on 45 for everybody. All right, now you know the rest of the story. I'm not sure if we're going to make it through all three hours playing that. I don't know. Are you in? Are you in? Uh, uh, oh, the judges say yes. We'll keep going. All right. Uh, feel free to jump into the fray. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson, at 900CHML.com. You can talk. You can text at 905-645-3221. Uh, leave us a last word. Also, join us for Hamilton's favorite game show coming up after the 5 o'clock news, uh, Hammerhead Trivia, another edition of we'll be playing that all right some um some sad news from the military it seems like we've lost a couple of members of the royal canadian air force uh, still waiting for more information on this uh two killed in a chinook helicopter crash early uh tuesday morning near ottawa four member crew on a training mission in the military uh earlier in the day the two two had been injured uh injured and then and again details are very very uh vague here uh the four member crew on a training flight overnight uh, it went down in the Ottawa River near Garrison, Petawawa, said the National Defense Department in a state uh, statement. Uh, two crew members taken to the hospital uh, by first responders, and then they were uh, searching for other, the other two. So, again, more details on that story still to come out, uh, but still obviously in its uh, very early stages too, but tragic news uh, for the military today. And also... Another bizarre story, which uh, we told you about yesterday and is continuing on today, and that is uh, the missing Titanic submersible submarine, uh, which takes people down, or whether it's scientists, or in this case, I believe it's tourists, uh, pay something like 250000 bucks to take you off the coast of Newfoundland and down to the actual wreckage of the Titanic. And think about that. Um, you know, this isn't a ride at Disney. This is quite a feat when you think about it. And obviously the danger involved, we're uh, realizing that now. Uh, the submersible vanished a couple of days ago carrying five people. This is out of USA Today. This is the latest report. Uh, taking them to the wreckage of the Titanic. Uh, they said at an earlier news conference uh, today, I was watching a bit of this, uh, 40 hours roughly of breathable air left, said a U.S. Coast Guard spokesman. Um, re rescue teams have searched 7,600 square miles of the Atlantic Ocean since Sunday. To date, those uh, search efforts have not yielded any results, uh, said the Coast Guard. More, more search ships traveling to the area, but he said the effort was incredible complex. Um, they weren't there. They weren't at the site. They're somewhere between point A and point B. 
and you can imagine just how great an area that is. So obviously the issue is them trying to find this right now, but then once you find it, what do you do? Do you have the capability of bringing it up? Do you have the equipment and and the power there to, to do all of that once you, once you do locate where it is, uh, whether it's somewhere between point A and B, whether it's ventured off course, uh, whether it's sitting on the bottom uh, or not. The carbon fiber submersible named Titan had a 96-hour oxygen supply when I went out to sea at 6 a.m. on Sunday. Uh, that's an advisor. This is from an advisor at Ocean Gate Expedition, uh, Expeditions, which is the company that owns this uh, five-person vessel. Uh, was reported overdue Sunday night, 435 miles south of St. John's, uh, according to Canada's Joint Rescue Coordination Center. Um, and 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 now we are finding more about those that are on board. But the Canadian research icebreaker Polar Prince, which was supporting Titan, lost contact with the vessel about an hour and 45 minutes after it submerged. So they were just on their way uh, when, in fact, um, they lost contact with them. As they, as you can imagine, the Coast Guard saying it's a very remote area. It is a challenge to conduct a search in this area. And um, and obviously they're trying to get there within that window of the 96-hour emergency uh, sustainable equipment capacity that keeps it, whether it's fuel, uh, whether it's uh, uh, air or what have you. So uh, obviously there is a uh, mad dash to try to find this as well as getting other equipment there uh, to the area and when they do find it, uh, what they can do to try to recover it and save those that uh are inside so uh, a very very uh, frightening situation uh, which is going on but uh, you know this is uh, a depth of nearly two and a half miles uh, and and you think that's where the wreckage is and then once uh, they said that uh, submersibles go down below a certain point. There's only a certain amount of limited equipment that has the capability of doing that. Certainly, no human is uh, is able to you know to dive down into those depths. So, uh, very very far down, and you know one of the reasons that the vessel is still uh, or the Titanic rather is still preserved into the uh, you know what we see when when those like this go down there. But uh, an incredibly incredible a dangerous situation and I think uh, obviously finding out just exactly how dangerous that is when uh, it appears at this point uh, this submersible is probably on about uh, a half a tank when it comes to oxygen or fuel or anything that can uh, that can uh, keep it maneuverable keep it uh, running so a very precarious situation and certainly we'll keep an eye on that throughout the course of uh, the afternoon Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. It is 320. It's 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. I'm Scott Thompson. Join the fun. Send us a note, Scott Thompson, at 900CHML.com. Phone lines always open. Talk, text, leave your last word. Join us for Hammerhead Trivia coming up after the 5 o'clock news. Uh, still to come on the shows, doctors and ethics experts concerned over 
Ozempic. Do you know anything about this? We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. And remember all the ballyhoo around Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden? Seems that uh, that has caught up with him, and we will talk about that coming up later on this hour. Uh, this is great news, great to hear uh, for Hamilton. 14 years after a group of passionate sport fans in Hamilton met to discuss the future of some photos that were going to be mothballed at the old Cops Coliseum, many of those same folks gathered Saturday afternoon to open the doors to the Hamilton Sports Hall of fame yes it has a physical space eva rothwell center on wentworth street north to talk more about all of this gary mckay with us president hamilton sports hall of fame and here now gary thanks for the time hope you're well i'm fine scott how are you i'm doing very good uh, this must be a tremendous time for everybody that's had any involvement in in, in collecting this memorabilia absolutely I, I mean we've been ever since we started this thing we debated whether we would actually collect memorabilia and we decided that there have been gold medals by people, one in Hamilton, that have left the city. Um, and we decided those things should stay in Hamilton and be part of telling the story of Hamilton's sport and history. So we've been collecting them for years, and now finally we can display them. So give people a bit of back history here who weren't here 14 years ago to hear how this started. How did this come about? Give us a brief history here. Okay, well, there was the Wall of Fame uh, at Cops Coliseum, which went all the way around the concourse, and there were a group of people, uh, Norm Marshall chaired that committee, um, that picked the people who would go up on the Wall of Fame. And then uh, around 2009, HECFI decided that they wanted that wall space back um, so they could put up advertising, which, ironically, they never did. Uh, but they decided <laughs> the pictures had to come down, and so... Brian Lewis, who worked at HECFI, uh, mm -hmm. got a group of us together and said, uh, what are we going to do? The pictures have to come down. Well, we kicked it around, and first of all, we asked if we could have the pictures um, to mothball them or collect them or decide what we were going to do with them. And then we decided, okay, well, let's start fresh and actually have a Hall of Fame with criteria, uh, selection committee, nominations, you know, the whole, the whole process you would expect. And then eventually we would collect artifacts, uh, for display, and that that happened around 2009, and it's taken us uh, from then till now, with of course a three-year interruption because of COVID, to get this thing off the ground. So, what did you do with all of this stuff until then? How do, how do you house it? Because I, I, you know, again, once you open this floodgate, people have lots of stuff to contribute to right. it. Oh yeah, how do you, where do you put it? And fortunately, one of uh, our good supporters, right from the beginning was Ron Foxcroft. Hmm. And Ron Foxcroft uh, had, a, had an office building with some uh, several rooms in it that he wasn't using, and he agreed to let us store items there um, until we were ready to take them out and display them. So they were in uh, storage uh, at uh, the Fox 40 headquarters. So talk about uh, finally coming up with a physical space. As you said, there was a time when you didn't even think or you were doubting whether there would even be a physical hall. How did you get to where you are today? Um, well, the, the um, I guess we, we, didn't, we weren't sure what we were going to do. Uh, the late David Braley thought we should go into a storefront somewhere. Um, and we just couldn't decide. And, of course, we really didn't have any money coming in either. Mm -hmm. Um, and so someone on the committee, um, suggested that we go to the Eva Rothwell Center and quietly, very secretly, um, the same person, uh, 
made a connection with Charles Jurovinsky and asked if he would consider being the sponsor of the room, so to speak. And the funny thing is, he said, yes, he'd love to do it, uh, providing we never tell anyone that he did it. Because wow. they only give money to uh, medical, you know, uh, yeah. medical facilities. And then, of course, later on, he stood up at one of the banquets and announced that he was doing it. <laughs> That's so out of character. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so he's, he's uh, and uh, he and the, the foundation that he and his wife had are sponsoring it for the next uh, oh, seven or eight years. Uh, and uh, we finally, once we moved in, just as COVID hit, so we moved our stuff and it was all piled in the middle of the room. And then we couldn't go in and start working on displaying it for, for the better part of two years. So how, where is it now uh, as far as uh, your vision and such? What is it like? Oh, we're very happy with it. I, uh, Sharon Garden, who's on our committee, and her husband, Bob Garden, who's on our selection committee, they worked nights and weekends, and they had the vision of what the room should look like. Uh, and a few other people on the committee said, hey, well, how about a poster over here? How about putting these pictures up over there? And and But there, it was their vision, and they worked like crazy, and we're really happy. Now, uh, it's it's a classroom, an old, it's the Robert yeah. Land School, so yeah. it's a classroom. There's not really a lot of room to expand, so what we're going to have to do is rotate displays through. Uh, as I was just about to say, so obviously a lot of stuff still in storage. Uh, yes, we have, and, and there are some some uh, people who are in the hall uh, who haven't been able to give us anything yet. Uh, and I say yet because we'll keep asking. Uh, and some, some had already, Harry Howell, for example, had given all of his stuff uh, to both the Hockey Hall of Fame and the New York Rangers Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. So we have very little from Harry, for example. Uh, and there are a few instances like that, but we have some wonderful displays from other people. So we will rotate displays through as we get them. And how do we get involved? How do we see it all? Uh, well, right now we're still negotiating the final arrangement with with uh, the Eva Rothwell Center to be able to open some evenings to let people in. Right. right? Uh, it's just a it's not, it's a small detail that we have to work out. So we will be posting it on the Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame dot com. And as soon as we get those details worked out, we'll put something on there that says we're going to be be open on these dates at this time. You know, please drop by. It's going to be fascinating to see what the uptake is, Gary, and how people jump on board this. You may have to look for another relo- another location very soon. Yeah, yeah. or another classroom there. Yeah, exactly. Just keep expanding it. Why yeah, not? Just moving down the hall, taking classroom after classroom. That, that's a great idea. Uh, Gary McKay with us, president of the Hamilton Sports Hall of Fame, and it now has a home after 14 years, and uh, a modest one at the Eva Rothwell Center, but it is starting small and could it keep expanding from there. You never know. Gary, good luck with this. It's a great ending to a great story, but I know, really, this is just the beginning for you guys. Good luck. Yes. Thanks, Scott, and we get great support from CHML, so thank you very much. Scott Thompson isn't worried about ruffling a few feathers. In fact, he kind of likes it. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML.
It is 3.36. It's 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. I'm Scott Thompson. Thanks for joining us. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone line's always open. Talk, text, leave us your last word. Join us for Hammerhead Trivia coming up after the 5 o'clock news, 905-645-3221. I don't know if you've seen these commercials or not, or maybe they're uh, you haven't noticed them because there's so many ads for gambling. <laughs> but in amongst all the gambling ads... Uh, you might notice the ads for a product called Ozempic. And it's sort of confusing. It's sort of mysterious. Have you heard about it? Have you talked about it? Just ask. I have, and, and you really don't know what it is. Uh, I think it's a, well, it's commonly used for treating type 2 diabetes, but often a prescribed off-label uh, uh, drug is also used to treat obesity, although it's not necessarily sold that way, which obviously with intense saturation of advertising could lead uh, to pressure on doctors to prescribe Ozempic to patients who really don't need it and uh, experiencing shortages as a result of it. Let's bring in Dr. Carrie Bowman, bioethicist and assistant professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine, University of Toronto, and with us now. Carrie, as always, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Very well indeed. So what was the objective of this drug uh, initially? Was it designed for type 2 diabetes, and then one of the offshoots is or side effects is it loses, you, you decrease weight? Yeah, more or less. You know, this family of drugs has been around for a while, but this particular use, what became quite obvious is that um, when a person is on this, it appears, you know, their their interest in food tends to decline very, very quickly. It's not that the drug is, is just sort of burning up, uh, you know, uh, calories right. or anything. It's that a person's interest in food really, really seems to shift and, and so, look, in fairness, uh, it, it's one of the biggest weight loss uh, drugs that's emerged in a long time. In fact, it's the largest intervention since, you know, uh, surgical interventions. Um, so there's some real benefits. And look, if someone has type 2 diabetes, but there's many other ways to treat type 2 diabetes. It's not like this is the only and first way to do it. But look, for people that really have serious weight problems um, and obesity, there's no question that this is a drug that is going to be very, very useful. So I, I, you know, I don't want to be overly negative here. This could really help people that have some serious problems. But here's the thing. As you said in your opening, um, it, it's like saturation bombing in terms of advertising. It's a bit mysterious because under Canadian law, you can have these reminder ads, which means talk to your doctor. But, you know, you can't be specific as to what it's about if it's if it's for something like this that's off target. So that's what's happening. But there's a huge buzz, probably a little more in the United States than there is in Canada, because a lot of people are losing a lot of weight very quickly on this. Look, there's side effects. Um, it's tremendously costly unless you fit into this criteria where your doctor's going to prescribe it for you. And um let, let's be clear, like if someone's got 10 or 15 pounds to lose, you really want to change your metabolism for the rest of your life and be on an injectable drug? Like mm. really? Um, with side effects. So what worries me greatly is, is you know, this talk to your doctor is there's, gun, there's a lot of people that want to get that last 10 or 15 pounds off. And it's really, really not for them. And there's good, you know, this is Canada. So the thing is, you don't really have to do what your doctor tells you to do. You have to be informed. So if you say to your doctor, I really want to do this, you know, I'm not saying he or she's necessarily going to prescribe it. 
But, you know, you know, you have the right to ask. And if you're informed. So I really worry that when they say, you know, you should talk to your doctor or have you talked to your doctor, that it's every, each and every one of us should be considering this. And that's not the case. Um, and they're really kind of, you know, there's just so much of this out there. And, and you know, people are going to interpret that it's kind of a public health message. And it's really not. Do you have to have diabetes in order to be prescribed this? Because obviously uh, weight loss and type 2 diabetes go hand in hand. So, um, you, you know, it makes sense that this this works together this way. But do you have to necessarily, are you supposed to be diabetic in order to receive this drug? Yes, but you also extreme, you know, if you've got extreme obesity. Now, look, I'm not sure how that's defined, but there's 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 body mass index. So, Apparently, if a person is above a certain body mass index, um, then they can be prescribed this as well. But, you know, these things tend to be sometimes there's variation between one doctor and another and interpretation of these things. And, you know, talk to your doctor ads. The Americans use them nonstop. I mean, if you ever watch American television, oh, it's it's exhausting to just get through those commercials. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, they really, really work because, you know, when there's plenty of evidence, doctors just cave and they, they, they give people all kinds of stuff. So, so that's the problem is that they're creating this buzz that each and every one of us should be considering whether this is the right drug for us. And I would argue... You know, it's really not. It, 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 but, you know, I, it, for most people, it isn't. Um, but, for you know, I'm, I'm not slamming a complete door because I don't think we should demonize the entire drug because for people that really, really need it, the benefits can be really substantial. And, and you know, we're still learning more things about this drug. There's been a few surprises that, you know, people are losing a lot of weight in their face and their butts and they don't always love the outcome of this whole thing, right? Um, mm. So... But it also it may have secondary benefits as well. So, you know, these are still early days. Yeah, one thing, Carrie, to want to take the last 10 or 15 pounds off, that doesn't necessarily define obesity. Um, no. So <laughs> is it worth it for those people that are really not obese? Are the side effects worth it? Well, you know, people have to decide for themselves what they're willing to live with. Um, and, you know, there's ways to find this online. And by the way, I mean, the costs, are, I, I'm forgetting now, but it's thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars a year if you're paying out of pocket. I would say absolutely not. And, you know, people shouldn't feel pressured into it. It's also this whole pressure of, you know, bodies and body types and things like that. Like who says the last 10 or 15 pounds need to come off at all? And who says they're extra? Mm. You know, like if a person's healthy, there's so many different ways of thinking about these things. You know, as I'm looking at some of the side effects of this, Carrie, um, <laughs> and, and, and I'm certainly no doctor, but it seems to me the reason you're losing weight is because you feel terrible. You feel like crap and you don't want to. Some, yeah, you know, I've spoken to some people that say they felt so sick they couldn't they couldn't function on it. Others said they didn't feel much at all. There seems to be a lot of variation on that front, but but, you know, as I say, and I purposely repeat this, you really want to change your metabolism for a lifetime at a huge cost for 10 pounds. And, you know, the thing I worry about, too, and I, I know this has already occurred, people with eating disorders, um, you know, are requesting the drug. Mm. So, look, those could be people with less than 10 pounds, um, you know, so... Um, this could be very, very problematic. And and so when they say that, you know, the and the ads are 
everywhere and they're larger than life. I saw one that must have been, I don't know, it must have been 15 feet in the air. You know, they're, they're really, really everywhere. And, you know, that's marketing as far as I'm concerned. That's not a public health campaign to try and save us all. Um, that really is marketing. And I, I worry about that because it's giving a very negative message, I think, to a lot of people. Dr. Carrie Bowman with us, bioethicist and assistant professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine, University of Toronto, talking about Ozempic, a uh, type 2 diabetes drug. Many are taking it to lose weight, creating another set of issues. Carrie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Very, very welcome. Thank you. It is 3.50. It is 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. I'm Scott Thompson. Jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson, at 900CHML.com. You can talk. You can text. You can leave us your last word with Matt at 905-645-3221. Don't forget Hammerhead Trivia coming up after the 5 o'clock news. You might remember during the presidential campaign, the last presidential campaign, Donald Trump uh, was talking about Hunter Biden, Joe Biden's son, um, at length about his past and his record. Uh, he's expecting ple- uh, pleading guilty to two misdemeanor tax crimes and admitted to illegally possessing a gun while a drug user after a five-year investigation. What does this mean moving forward? Is it related to the president in any way? Let's bring in Jaskin, uh, Jackson Proskow, Washington Bureau Chief for Global News, Global National, and with us now. Jackson, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Good afternoon. So, Jackson, give us a little bit of backstory here and and what we arrived at today, where we are today. Yeah, so this has been a long simmering investigation, as you mentioned, going on for quite some time now. Uh, Really, you know, looking into the fact that Hunter Biden owed back taxes and this question about whether or not he was authorized to possess the gun that he had. Uh, He owed about $100,000 in taxes in each of two years that he did not file uh, based on his claimed income. And as you pointed out, one of the charges here as well is a gun charge for essentially uh, not admitting to his drug use or addiction uh, while uh, possessing a gun. So after all the investigations that have been going on here, uh, we've reached this uh, essentially plea deal. And this seems to bring it all to a close. Uh, And I think really the thing to take away from this is that legal analysts actually say that Hunter Biden, in a way, is getting harsher treatment than many people, that these crimes are rarely prosecuted. I mean, think about how many people applying for a gun permit in this country are probably not disclosing their drug use. Uh, They aren't prosecuted for it. Hunter Biden is being prosecuted for it. But at the end of the day, I think this helps the White House get some distance from Biden's legal troubles and, you know, claims that he is being treated favorably. Uh, Is this uh, about presidential business? Does this have anything to do with the president or is this just personal problems within a family and somebody who's who's got some issues? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the takeaway here. It's not a a clean, simple story, uh, but what it is is linked to Hunter Biden's own personal issues, personal problems. Of course, Republicans have for quite a while now been trying to draw a link between Hunter Biden's troubles and Joe Biden and essentially saying that Hunter Biden was peddling influence, using his last name to, uh, you know, make a lot of money, uh, sell access and sell influence. But there hasn't been any proof here that Joe Biden, the president, actually benefited from this, that he actually took money. And we've seen things like voicemail messages left by Joe Biden for his son, Hunter, leaked. 
And in those voicemails, what you hear is a family that is trying to support someone who is struggling with a dip, difficult period and, and struggling with addiction. So what, what's the relationship like between uh, Hunter Biden and Joe Biden? I, I, any conflict there? What do we know about the relationship between the two? No, I mean, they are as close as a father and son can be, especially a father and son who have been united by the tragedy of the loss of Bo Biden, uh, Joe mm. Biden's eldest son. Um, I think the thing to keep in mind here is that the White House is really trying to keep political distance from Hunter Biden's legal troubles. They are not commenting on the charges today, for example. Uh, They are also, uh, you know, really uh, stepping back from this. And you have to keep in mind that the uh, district attorney who reached this plea deal with Hunter Biden was actually appointed by former President Trump. And Attorney General Merrick Garland has been crystal clear that there is no influence here uh, from the Justice Department, that this has just operated in its own little world the way any other criminal proceeding would. There is no influence from the top here in how this is being prosecuted. Any fallout for Joe Biden here as obviously he continues on with his presidential race and such? I mean, is and we certainly know the Trump campaign uh, used this a lot in the past. How does that affect the campaign moving forward? Yeah, I mean, look, Trump and Republicans are railing against the plea deal. They're essentially saying that the president personally orchestrated a lenient penalty for his son, and they're promising to continue their investigations of the Biden family. Again, though, the district attorney who reached this deal was appointed by former President Trump. That's the the biggest thing to keep in mind here. And there have been numerous investigations over the years, and this is where they've landed. That is simply how the justice system works. But that is not stopping Republicans from saying uh, that Hunter Biden has received a slap on the wrist and that there is some sort of malfeasance involving the president. They still haven't emerged with any formal proof of that. That's not stopping the accusations. And you have to know that since they've got control of the House and they can control the investigative mechanisms of the House, that they're going to keep probing into this. They're going to keep looking into this and trying to dig up something here. How does this story resonate with the American people? Are they listening? Are they interested? You know, I think that's a a good question. I think the average person probably looks at this as somebody's troubled son. I don't think that outside of Republican circles that this necessarily resonates on a wide scale. I think Democrats are looking at this and saying, yeah, troubled son, but also if we're going to investigate influence peddling and, you know, accusations against presidential children, then perhaps we should be looking at the actions of Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner, who faced accusations that they very much sold access to uh, President Trump. So I think it cuts both ways. I think it will be a pretty standard talking point in the 2024 presidential campaign. But I think people's viewpoints on this are pretty entrenched one side or the other. Wow, it'll be interesting if we get into the Trump family during the election campaign. My goodness, uh, the best yet to come. Uh, Jackson Proskow with us, Washington Bureau Chief for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global National tonight for more on all of this. Jackson, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. Take care. Oh, no. It's nonstop. It never ends. It starts on 45. I don't know if you should be dancing or if I should be apologizing. Uh, good afternoon. It is 410. It's 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. Uh, Mad Matt on the board here. Uh, spinning the stars on 45. The original 7-inch A-side. There you go. Uh, stars on 45 went to number one in North America on this day in 1981. Medley of the Beatles song set to a disco beat started a flood of stars on hits, including Motown and Stevie Wonder, punk songs and... 
There's millions of versions of Stars on 45. There you go. That's the original. That's the number one. Back from uh, 1981. There you go. Uh, feel free to jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines are always open, 905-645-3221. Talk, text, leave us your last word. Join us for Hammerhead Trivia coming up uh, one hour from now. You know, we've got, uh, um, we've reported on the story earlier on about a, a helicopter crash with the uh, Canadian military. It happened, this is uh, four Canadian Armed Forces personnel on board a CH-147 Chinook. Uh, this is from Anita Anan, a tweet from the National Defense Minister. Happened around 1210, uh, last night, early this morning, 150K northwest of Ottawa, uh, helicopter going down near the Ottawa River. And then it gets very cloudy as to what has happened. Uh, the Prime Minister came out earlier saying that he had talked to the Chief of Defense Staff, General Wayne Eyre, to offer his condolences after members had been killed. Uh, then we're finding out neither the military nor defense officials have confirmed that any crew members were killed or are presumed dead. Defense officials uh, said late this afternoon uh, search and recovery efforts are ongoing. So there you have it. Um, uh, not sure exactly what the scenario is, but obviously uh, a Chinook helicopter is down. And uh, as soon as we can bring you any more information, but uh, the military at this point, um, not on the same page as the prime minister, uh, talking about two or, or sorry, at least uh, one or two members that have passed. And then uh, the military coming out and said, nope, not confirming any of that. So keep your fingers crossed. Also keep your fingers crossed for this incredible story, which is uh, going on off the coast of uh, of Newfoundland at the site of the Titanic or just before that. Um, U.S. Coast Guard spokesman saying earlier today on a news conference, probably about 40 hours of breathable air left in this submer- uh, submersible, a submarine basically with five on board heading out to the wreck site of the Titanic. Uh, and they lost contact with the sub about an hour and a half in. They're searched, they have searched 7,600 square miles of the Atlantic Ocean since Sunday and have not been able to find anything. Uh, They think they're uh, uh, roughly halfway through their 96 hours of air and um, and fuel on board that they would need. Obviously not sure if uh, this thing is on the bottom, um, on the top, or somewhere in between. And um, again, no comment, or sorry, no contact made with this sub since about an hour and 45 minutes after it uh, submerged. You can imagine the size of this area is gigantic, and trying to do any sort of search operation is, um, you're looking for a needle in a haystack. And the other issue is, is once they find this sub or locate it, uh, what do you do with it? Is it on the bottom? Can you bring it up? Do you have the capability of doing that? Uh, apparently, uh, the wreckage two and a half miles down there. Although, again, uh, not quite sure if, um, you know, where the sub is between point A and point B. And, um, and, you know, whether, you know, my guess not even making its to its destination uh, at the wreck site, from what I can understand, uh, about 900 miles east of Cape Cod, 13,000 uh, feet deep is, uh, you know, uh, where this thing is sitting, where the, the wreck is sitting. So uh, this is not a Disney ride by any means. This 
uh, ride it on any given day is a very, very dangerous scenario. Uh, people are not capable of going down that deep unless you are inside something like this. So the equipment that is needed in order to retrieve or, um, or, or somehow rescue those inside. Who knows what happens, uh, once you get to that stage. At this point, they are just trying to find the thing. So we'll keep you updated on that as time progresses. It is 420. It is 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. I'm Scott Thompson. Welcome to the show. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines always open. Talk, text, leave us your last word. Join us for Hammerhead Trivia coming up after the 5 o'clock news. We've talked about uh, artificial intelligence uh, a lot on this show, and it's kind of bizarre how it, it, it came from, uh, oh, look at this, to, oh, my God, now it's going to wipe out humanity. Uh, some of the godfathers of AI, well, two of its godfathers, uh, are, are saying that we got to really watch this and that it could even wipe out humanity. Let's bring in David Shipley, cybersecurity expert and CEO of Boceron Security, and with us now. David, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thanks for having me. So, David, what does it say when two of the creators of the Godfathers, as it was put here, of this uh, of this industry are warning us about its future? What does that say? Well, I, I think the attention being paid to should we should we continue to do this? What are the consequences if we do this and don't understand it? Is probably worthwhile, but there's a lot of hyperbole here. We are nowhere close to Skynet. Um. Wipe out humanity. That's a pretty. That's that's the extreme. How how did they arrive at that? Well, what they're concerned about is not the current generation of artificial intelligence. The current generation of artificial intelligence is a lot like stats on steroids. It's still math. It's still uh, computing things. It's still computer reasoning. Uh, if this, then that kind of of thinking. Um, it, it, it has a fraction of our human brains capacity and is a is is the equivalent of simulating the neural networks in our brains as lego is to building the brooklyn bridge right like could you do it maybe with a ton of effort but no not really um what they're concerned about is the point at which artificial intelligence gains the capacity to reason i think i think therefore i am and has the same capacity as a human being which some experts say it could be in the next two years. Other experts say it could be 200 years. And some say it's never going to happen. And then the concern is an artificial general intelligence may not share our same worldview, ethics, etc., and could make catastrophic choices. Are you concerned about this? Is this something that we have to seriously plan for right now? No, I, I, I honestly am not uh, terribly worried. I've I've worked with a lot of artificial intelligence technologies. We've built some artificial intelligence technologies uh, within my company, and and they certainly are helpful, um, but they are not uh, as intelligent as the least intelligent human being you've ever met. Um, But we still have the edge. We're still top of the intelligent being food chain. Um, I think they can cause a lot of chaos still um, in terms of things like uh, deep fakes, uh, non-consensual pornographic image creation, scams, you name it. We have unleashed a, a whole host of horrors, but those are still being used by human beings. In this case, the AI is just a tool. It's, it's not thinking for itself. 
Couldn't the creators of this see this coming? I mean, um, what's different now? Has this conversation changed? Could they not predict this? I, I, I think is as the scientists and the godfathers of the field got older, they realized that some of the moral justifications they may have used to say, well, if I don't build this, somebody else will. Um, they're starting to realize that, you know, there are some technologies that um, maybe we're better off not inventing. And, um, you know, I, I do think they're seeing the, the worst possible case scenario emerge from this. And, you know, certainly the leap that we took with generative AI, chat GPT and other technologies able to create convincing artificial content um, was surprising in both its, its, its success um, that it does have and how quickly it got adopted. So I think they get a little freaked out about that. I think um, the danger for Canadians is that if we get too worried about Skynet, we're not going to pay enough attention to things that are happening right now, like flawed artificial intelligence discriminating against people. Uh, can, uh, can you not invent? I mean, can you can you throttle that stuff back, or will, won't there always always be somebody out there who's going to push forward with it and even use it for evil, not good? Well, and that's that's one of the challenges of of can you put the brakes on this if China is going to embrace it wholeheartedly and use it to accelerate their economy, their military capacity, you name it? Um, and can we afford not to be in this arms race? It's a good question, and I wish I was smart enough to answer that one. I, I would think um, if if we are potentially going to stumble into an artificial general intelligence where we're going to potentially create intelligent life, um, it's worth thinking through the consequences. Um, and worse, if we become dependent on it and it's smarter than we are, there are concerns. Um, but then in the near term, I think it's far more likely that we're going to see the current generation of artificial intelligence technologies displacing how people work making some jobs redundant, and we are going to have to think about the economic consequences of that. Um, you talked about how the technology isn't there now, uh, but uh, one of the big things about AI, one of the the issues is that how quickly it has progressed. What happens if, just like with AI, this now can all be done very quickly? Well, I mean, it, it, it's cost $100 million and massive data centers to create something that can write clever poems. Um, that's ChatGPT, hmm. uh, to create human-level intelligence, which is orders of magnitude um, more difficult than that. We're talking staggering sums of money, staggering um, sums of compute power, and, and whether or not that, that compute is even possible to do that, um, and uh, a whole bunch of variables that we haven't solved. And, and I do think we are in a massive hype cycle with AI right now. There are some cool things that AI can do, hands down. But some of the stuff that we're seeing people uh, preach about are the same folks that were parading around cryptocurrency as revolutionizing world finance at a time um, now where we see a lot of these crypto folks going to jail for fraud. So, you know, a little bit of caution on some of the hype. And if you look back the history of humankind, there's lots of examples of this. Uh, David Shipley with his cybersecurity expert, CEO of Boceron Security. The future of AI, could it wipe out humanity? Not in our lifetime. David, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. Take care. Be safe.
It is 437. It is 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. Welcome to the show. Feel free to jump in. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines are always open. You can talk, you can text, you can leave us your last word. Hammerhead trivia coming up about a half an hour from now after the five o'clock news. Uh, lots going on in Parliament in Ottawa, and we're heading for the summer and a break. So where does that leave everything? Where does that leave um, the allegations of election interference, the David Johnston situation, uh, a public inquiry? Does that happen? Where do we go with that? As well as the situation which came up last week in regard to Paul Bernardo and the safety minister, Marco Mendicino, and not knowing that he had been, Bernardo had been moved from a maximum to a medium uh, security prison. So there's lots on fire uh, for the government right now. Where do they go heading into the summer? How do you how do you simmer this all down for a summer break? Let's bring in Peter Gray, professor of political science, McMaster University, and is with us now. Peter, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, thanks. Hope you're well, too. So, Peter, uh, lots of issues going on for uh, the government right now. How do you cool things down? How do you leave things uh, simmering over the summer with this? W- what options do we have here? Well, I mean, I, I think it hasn't been a particularly successful parliamentary session for the Liberals, and so... You know, I, I think you do rely on the summer that people's thoughts are elsewhere. Uh, you know, I think once we have the Toronto mayoral election uh, in a week's time, uh, people will be thinking otherwise. But for the, the Liberals, I think it's really about figuring out, do they have the best team uh, in cabinet? Do they need to do a cabinet shuffle at some point over the summer? Uh, and how, how are they going to uh, actually go on the offensive, <laughs> like in the fall, rather than simply... Uh, fighting to put out fires it's it's hard to really see a lot of you know clear agenda items uh, that this government is really trying to connect uh, with Canadians for or ultimately uh, any series of policies serious policies that they're hoping to develop to you know to improve our lives as Canadians so I think they need to to figure that out over the summer uh, and hope that uh, when the public's attention returns in the fall that uh, they maybe are able to capture it there was chat of prorogation, uh, cabinet shuffle, as you mentioned. W- what's most likely to happen here? Is there any reason to prorogue government? Uh, no, not really. I don't mm. think at this stage. Uh, you know, I, I mean, there aren't that many uh, important bills that would be kind of set back uh, through a prorogation. But, you know, at the same time, uh, it doesn't really seem that there's a need to, you know, come back with, a you know, its own speech. Uh, in the fall. So, uh, nevertheless, I mean, the government may decide to prorogue on a sort of more cynical reason that, you know, through the summer, uh, parliamentary committees can still uh, hold hearings. We saw a couple of years ago how that, you know, effectively embarrassed the government through the summer with the whole we uh, charity uh, question. And, you know, we could imagine something similar uh, either around uh, some of the faux pas of the, you know, public safety minister on, on the Bernardo case, or, you know, perhaps more a substantively uh, you know, raising questions about some kind of uh, independent inquiry uh, around foreign election interference, uh, you know, that those might be kept alive by the opposition parties uh, over the summer. And so, again, a prorogation would shut that down. And that might be in the, the interest of the government, uh, although, you know, it might also be seen as just another cynical move by a government that is really in a uh, damage control mode in terms of their image. 
Uh, do you think a cabinet shuffle is the most obvious thing that will happen? I mean, you used the example of Marco Mendicino. It, it'd be kind of tough to, for him to continue on uh, in his portfolio. Do you see that as a major plank here, is, is just shuffling things up? Yeah, I mean, I think many people uh, see it as a way to kind of freshen things up. I think part of the problem is that it's a very centralized government, as you know, governments have been in the, the past quarter century. You know, so much flowing out of the prime minister's office. And it's not always clear that, you know, changing the hands uh, in the different ministries is going to have a huge uh, in, input, uh, impact in terms of what the, the output is of this government. So, you know, there's that question, although, I mean, the case of Mendicino makes it clear that when you have someone who has a difficulty uh, really managing his files, it, it does take the momentum away from the government. So, you know, there may be some uh, interest in doing that. I mean, there's also a way in which this government is beginning to look very old. Uh, Canadians seem to be tired of the prime minister, uh, not necessarily seeing, you know, what this government is is uh, accomplishing. So changing some of the faces that have been there since 2015 and uh, maybe elevating uh, some newer uh, members of the, of the uh, governing party, you know, might be a way to, to freshen up the image uh, of the government and, uh, you know, allow some some newer ideas to contend. As you mentioned, as this government gets older and deeper and deeper into these affairs, whatever they are, is it unrealistic to expect you can come back in September and just pretend it never happened? I mean, or is it going to take a major distraction in order to get them back on the rails in the fall? Well, unfortunately, uh, you know, disasters and, uh, you know, difficult issues seem to happen frequently in the world. And so... Mm. You know, I think the question of, of uh, foreign election interference isn't going to go away, uh, but it may come in at a sort of lower temperature as, you know, some other issue uh, will, will you know, join uh, the list of issues. I mean, we saw even just with these forest fires, uh, you know, changes the channel a bit and gets more people talking about climate change again. Some things that are going to, you know, shift public attention. I mean, in that, you know, I guess the question is really what does this government hope to to accomplish? Some of its big picture accomplishments in the, in the past year, say around, you know, public dental care, uh, I think in, in many people's minds are maybe closer to uh, an NDP accomplishment than a liberal one. So, you know, what exactly uh, is Trudeau trying to accomplish uh, and his government trying to accomplish? I mean, they got some pats on the back, like by Brian Mulroney the other week, uh, trying to say, well, you know, in the big picture sense of things, they've done some things right, but... You know, two years into this government's mandate, it's it's not really clear what the narrative is in terms of what they're trying to do and, and what they've accomplished towards that end. Where does this leave Jagmeet Singh, head of the NDP? At what point does he f- fish cut bait? What what does he have? When does he use the timing here to his advantage? Yeah, I mean, I think he's a bit stuck in a box. Uh, in that, I think his base is happy. It was a position that he's in and his capacity. Uh, to uh, achieve things, uh, you know, such as uh, the dental care program, you know, trying to get a bit of leverage on on pharmacare and so on. But at the same time, for those outside of his base, I think he's seen as, uh, in a way, a kind of a crutch for the Liberal government. And so he wears the unpopularity of that government with the general electorate. So I think for him, it's to to find a way that he can begin to ramp up uh, a kind of an independent position in the eyes of the Canadian public, Uh, you know, before, you know, moving towards, uh, you know, trying to break with the government or or bring down the government. But I think in many ways, we're more likely to see the government engineer its own fall or decide to call an election at a time that's propitious to it, rather than getting to a point where where Singh has the ability to to bring down the government in a way that 
expands his popularity outside of you know the NDP ecosystem without having a lot of people close to the NDP saying, well, why are you bringing down this government and, and risking the election of Pierre Poilievre? Peter Griff with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University, the government, House of Commons, as we head into the summer. Peter, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. And you too. It is 4.50. It is 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. I'm Scott Thompson. Join the conversation. Send us a note, Scott Thompson, at 900CHML.com. Phone lines always open, 905-645-3221. Interesting article by Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Professor of Food Distribution and Policy and the Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University in the Toronto Star of late, talking about food and inflation. We all know what has happened in a post-pandemic world, many questioning uh, the competition between these companies and such uh, and and asking them in light of record profits to to give the public a break. What is going on? Uh, Where is the Competition Bureau in this? Do they have a greater role? Dr. Sylvain Charlebois is with us now. So uh, obviously uh, we've talked about this a lot on this show with you and we've talked about uh, the parliamentary uh, investigations into this not many uh, not much progress made on this uh, when people are questioning the profits and such but you get the feeling there is about to be change here why do you feel that way uh, it's, uh, you can feel the nervousness in the industry to be honest uh, so obviously last week we got the report from the House of Commons uh, 13 recommendations uh, most of them were actually quite good uh, but most of them were more uh, idealistic i guess uh to prepare a, a food policy for canada you could use those recommendations except for the one on, on the windfall tax uh the windfall tax really was an indication of what's to come uh so in the report it was suggesting that perhaps uh, parliament should consider a windfall task if the competition bureau believes that there's gouging or profiteering going on in the industry. Uh, the problem is that the study itself conducted by the Conference Bureau has nothing to do with assessing profiteering. It's very much about understanding competitive dynamics. So, But still, uh, you can feel that perhaps uh, the Bureau itself is, is about to get uh, more authoritative, I guess, uh, and could operate with more resolve. What can the Competition Bureau do considering it would have approved all of this, wouldn't it have? Well, sort of. Uh, of course, uh, the track record is not great. Uh, we've, we're in year number eight of the bread price fixing uh, scheme uh, investigation. Uh, nothing has been resolved. There's been suspicions around meat prices, seafood prices. Uh, we haven't seen any reports. Uh, nobody got arrested. Nobody got fined. Uh, I think Canadians are getting restless or at least they, they feel unprotected. And so that's why I think uh, expectations around the Bureau are quite different than uh, what happened. The circus that we saw in Ottawa with the committee. So um, you're you're getting the feeling that we may see more teeth within the competition bureau. How does that how does that happen? How do they change their stance that way? And how does industry react to that? We met with the bureau a couple of times uh, as part of the study that they're conducted the last couple of months, and uh, I have a feeling that they actually think they have a lot of power. 
But if you ask Canadians if they do have enough power, I think the answer overwhelmingly would be no, because uh, uh, you do see the food industry do a lot of things, like the blackout period. The blackout period uh, happens in the fall. Uh, it happens around the holiday season. Grocers, all of them at once, ask vendors not to raise prices for mm -hmm. three months. Now, it's it's close to 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 be collusion, really. They're not that, they're not playing around with retail prices, but I suspect that up the food chain, if you play around with prices, if you coordinate prices, you're likely going to impact retail prices, and that's a practice that's been going on for years. I'm not sure there's any, there's any appetite for that kind of culture anymore. Uh, I remember you saying that when that happened way back when. How is the yeah. industry reacting to? Uh, the sense that, uh, that the Competition Bureau could be getting some teeth. What's the reaction from the food industry? Well, they're nervous. I mean, when you look at some of the things we do know, I mean, Galen Weston disappeared a couple of weeks ago. Uh, mm. Michael uh, McCain, uh, who is the president of, uh, of Maple Leaf Foods, but he actually was involved with the bread price fixing scandal uh, because at the time they owned... Canada Bread. It, they did sell Canada Bread in 2014, the year before uh, the bread cartel allegedly ended. So he actually could face some accusations and uh, he's stepping down also in 2024. And Eric Laflèche, the, the CEO of Metro, recently uh, endorsed the code of conduct, which is in the works right now. And the code would actually basically lessen the power that Walmart, Loblaws, and Metro would have, because uh, right now they're di just, they're just basically bullying their vendors, and they get all the terms they want, right. and they can actually delist anybody they want all the time. And Eric Lafleche actually endorsed uh, verbally in public the code itself, and that was a bit of a surprise. A lot of people were caught off guard, including myself. So those are the kinds of signals you look for when it comes to, you know, industry nervousness. Uh, changing of the guard, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois with us, Professor of Food Distribution and Policy, Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, and his latest in the star, food retail sector facing big changes. Uh, we'll see what happens. Sylvain, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Take care. Bye-bye. Good afternoon. It is 510. It is 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. I'm Scott Thompson. Welcome to the show. Great to have you here. Uh, Mad Matt Taylor is spinning the stars on 45. And I, 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 I don't know. How do you feel about that? Is it making your toe tap or is it making you double over and thinking, oh, my God, I can't believe they just played that. Uh, stars on 45. Reason being, on this day in 1981, 1981, stars on 45 went to number one. Uh, medley of Beatles song set to a disco beat. It was the start of a flood of stars on hits, including uh, lots of Motown people, Diana Ross, Stevie Wonder, all that sort of stuff. Uh, there was a bazillion of these uh, eventually came out. And it all started with that one. The stars on 45, original 7-inch A-side, original 7-inch single remastered. 
What is that? Well, uh, that's, uh, that's a record. That's a 45. There you go. Um, now you know the rest of the story. Jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines always open. Talk, text. Uh, give us your last word. We would love to hear from you at 905-645-3221. Uh, the big stories of the day, um, Royal Canadian Air Force uh, Chinook helicopter down uh, just north of Ottawa and uh, four crew members on board. Originally, the prime minister said that there had been loss of life and uh, national defense saying that's not the case. It's still a search and rescue operation. So not her, uh, sure what happened there, but obviously uh, there is still hope as there is is for that sub which was taking people down to uh, the wreck of the Titanic has not been heard from since Sunday and that search continues alright enough of that let's give something away 905-645-3221 905-645-3221 time to play Hammerhead Trivia on the line a pair of tickets to catch AEW Collision All Elite Wrestling you got your grappling here Thursday, June 29th, First Ontario Center, All Elite Wrestling. Uh, here is your Hammerhead trivia question. The North Shore of Burlington Bay at Rock Bay was quite an active spot for Hamiltonians to gather back in 1883. There was one of the area's most popular amusement parks there on the shore, plus a hotel. On site provided everything from bar, dance hall, billiards, ice cream, and candy parlor. However, by the turn of the century, it was gone and being replaced by what? A, a mausoleum. B, a housing complex. C, a car dealership. D, Wild Waterworks slide. You got the answer. Call us now. 905-645-3221. 905-645-3221. Who is on the phone? Uh, North, Shore, North Shore, Burlington Bay, Rock Bay, quite an active spot for Hamiltonians together, uh, to gather. 1883, big hotel there and such, but it was gone by the turn of the century. Uh, what was it replaced by? A, a mausoleum. B, a housing complex. C, a car dealership. D, Wild Water Works slide. Paul, how are you today? Scott. So far, so good. Burlington Bay, quite a rocking spot back in 1883. Hotel, large amusement park, all kinds of stuff going on there. Uh, but then it was quick-lived. By the turn of the century, things had changed. What was uh, what was being, uh, or what took its place after the amusement park and hotel left? A, a mausoleum. B, housing complex. C, car dealership. D, wild waterworks. Scott, I will say A, mausoleum. Absolutely correct. A mausoleum. It opened up in 1925, eventually became a full-service crematorium, first in the city. Yep, you've done it. Congratulations. You're going to see some grappling. AEW Collision, All Elite Wrestling, Thursday, June 29th, First Ontario Centre. You're going to be there. Congratulations. I love it, Scott. Thank you very much. Take care. You're- you're more than welcome. Hang on a sec, and Matt will get all the information to make sure you get your prize. Yeah, uh, eventually opened in 1925. It's amazing how things started in this city at the turn of the century or even the late 1800s, but the city was advancing so quickly, especially with the arrival of the railway and such, that what was there one week, gone the next. There you go. Another edition of Hammerhead Trivia coming up tomorrow. 
It is 519. It is 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. I'm Scott Thompson. Welcome to the show. Jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Send us a note. Scott Thompson, 900 CHML.com. Phone lines always open. Talk, text. Leave us your last word. Matt, I'd love to record you. 905-645-3221. You might remember this time yesterday we were talking about the RCMP and that they were investigating the Prime Minister and the Liberal Party over allegations of political interference in the SNC-Lavalin trial. In a statement released Monday night, uh, the RCMP now says it's not investigating allegations of political interference in the exercise of uh, professional, uh, sorry, prosecutional discre- discretion to uh, secure a remediation agreement for SNC-Lavalin. To talk more about all of this, Duff Conagher, co-founder of Democracy Watch and Here Now. Duff, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, Sam. Thank you. So, Duff, what happened here? Your organization, Democracy Watch, went after this information. RCMP provided you with a statement uh, that said they were investigating. Then, uh, I guess, eight or nine hours later, they said the opposite. What happened here? Well, we don't quite know yet. Um, we required requested the information through the Access to Information Act, and uh, the RCMP responded and said uh, that they couldn't disclose the documents. The information we requested were all the investigation reports and documents about decisions concerning the prime minister and other members of his cabinet being uh, investigated for allegations of obstruction of the SNC-Lavalin pro- uh, prosecution, trying to stop it. And they said, we can't disclose uh, 86 page pages that we have because the matter is currently under investigation. That's May 25th. Uh, We received that letter just recently because it was sent to the wrong address, not Democracy Watch's address. We sent it to the media on Friday so that they could check with the RCMP. Some of the media outlets did check with them and ask them uh, to uh, just give a response. And the RCMP didn't give a response until yesterday, late in the day, and said they're not investigating and that the May 25th letter was based on information at the time, but that the investigation had actually ended in January. It's just very strange. If the investigation ended in January, January, then why didn't the RCMP know that in May when they sent us the letter? And this raises more questions. And, and, you know, obviously they couldn't give you the information you wanted because the investigation was ongoing. Now that obviously the investigation ended months ago, can they give you more information that you wanted? I requested that today from the uh, person who's listed in the RCMP's letter that they sent May 25th. And that letter said, uh, contact this person, um, Rita Latanzi Thomas is her name, and she's with the Access to Information branch. And so I contacted her today and said, well, um, first of all, what's going on? Is it correct what the RCMP said in their statement late yesterday that the uh, situation was, uh, the investigation into the situation ended in January? And if that's correct, then why did you send a letter to us May 25th saying that it was currently under investigation? 
And if it is actually not under investigation, then please send the 86 pages that you said you couldn't send us mm. because the matter was currently under investigation. And I have not received a response today. I know there are other reporters who are also trying to uh, get a response from the RCMP about this, these two contradictory statements and uh, how it's possible the RCMP didn't know at the end of May 2023 that an investigation by the RCMP had ended actually in January 2023. So we do know for a fact it is confirmed that the investigation is in fact over. So that is that part of it is true. Uh, well, an, ev- an investigation is over. Oh, We'll see how they respond. Maybe they'll say, no, there is that matter is under investigation still. And the RCMP statement was about another investigation. So that matter is still under investigation and we still can't send you the 86 pages. I don't know what I don't know what they're going to say. They it's really an unclear situation still because of contradictory statements from the RCMP. Could this just be, Duff, that this is their default position? Our default position is no comment. It's still under investigation. We're failing to look. Oh, never mind. It isn't under investigation uh, anymore. Or do you think, um, well, 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 what is your thought? What's your gut feeling here? Is it miscommunication or is there something else going on here? It's really hard to figure out. The RCMP, if, if it, they're talking about the same investigation, it finishes in January 2023. The investigations unit, according to the RCMP statement, sent a letter to the original complainant, which was not Demak uh, and said to that original complainant, we've completed the investigation. We're not charging or prosecuting anyone. Also said in their statement that that was to be released to access information requesters, including Demak It wasn't released. And then four to five months later, they send us a letter saying it's still currently under investigation. I don't see how the access information unit, the RCMP, cannot know that an investigation by the investigations unit has been over for four to five months. So I really don't know what's going on. It's really bizarre. And the RCMP could clear it up by just answering the simple questions. How did this happen? And why did you send contradictory statements? Uh, And... What investigations are you talking about and when were they over and when did they start? What were they about? Is it one investigation, more than one, et cetera? So um, you're, you're leading to believe that there's more than one investigation going on here into this SNC-Lavalin affair? No, I have no idea. Right. I, because they were so vague in their statement yesterday that it's really difficult to tell whether they're talking about the same investigation. And it just doesn't make sense. Their statement said the May 25th letter sent to Democracy Watch was based on information available at the time. Hmm. Well, how could it not have been available (laughs) at the time Uh. that the RCMP would know that its own investigation had ended? Yeah. And they, I mean, they had, the investigation unit wouldn't have been notified about the request and would have been asked, what documents can you disclose now? And they would say none. The investigation is currently going on, apparently, and that's why they sent us that letter. But no, they had finished it in January, so they don't tell the Access Information Division that they've finished it in January and already sent a letter out. It, just, it doesn't make sense. And it's either a screw-up or there's two different investigations. The RCMP knows all of us, and 
the media has been chasing them now for a full day for an actual explanation that actually explains the contradiction, and they have not responded. It's going to be fascinating. Go ahead. There's no reason not to respond. It's going to be it's going to be fascinating to see if you now, because there isn't an investigation, unlike they initially told you, if they will send you the redacted information they didn't because they thought there was an investigation going on. We'll be in touch when that happens, Duff. Uh, Duff Conagher yep. with us, co-founder of Democracy Watch. Duff, thanks for the clarity. Good luck. Thank you. I'll keep you updated. It is 536. It's 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. I'm Scott Thompson. Jump into the conversation. Love to hear from you. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Phone lines always open. Talk, text, leave us your last word, 905-645-3221. We would love to hear from you. All right, there was uh, four by-elections recently. You know, they, we, NDP leader Jugmeet Singh said he doesn't feel comfortable triggering an election because he doesn't want an election when there's alleged uh, alleged election interference by the Chinese Communist Party, yet, I don't know, by-elections are okay? I guess not as much of an impact. Nobody cares. Uh, But the four by-elections have come and gone, and on the surface looks like nothing has really changed, but it raises the point that despite the lack of drama, there are some important lessons to draw from these contests. To talk more about all of this, Tasha Kiridin is with us, principal at Navigator, author of The Right Path, and here now. Tasha, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, I am. Thank you. So, Tasha, as I said at the beginning, I remember talking to NDP leader Jagmeet Singh, and he goes, no, no election now because uh, we can't trust the system here, yet we're having by-elections. Does this matter? Uh, should we not be concerned about election interference at this level? Well, yeah, but the difference is that by-elections, you have to, by law, have a by-election. So they're kind of stuck. Um, I think it's, they have to be called within six months, if I'm not mistaken, of right. an MP resigning. So. There's there's no choice but to have a by-election, and um, you know hopefully hopefully they won't be interfered with. To your point, um, I think in this in these cases uh, the ridings were not some of those that might have allegedly been. The, the issue here was really whether the, the liberals and the conservatives would keep the seats they had. There were a couple of interesting situations in the ridings um, and challenges by Maxine Bernier, for example. So that that is really what I think these these by-elections were scrutinized for, if you will. So what's your take on all of this and the outcome? The the results are the same, but some different voting trends and such. What does this tell you? Well, it tells me the next campaign is going to be really nasty um, on a few levels. Uh, one was the nominations process. Um, there was some uh, noise about the nomination in Oxford, if you recall. Uh, Arpan Khanna, who was a previous candidate for the party back in 2019, was parachuted in. Uh, there's no other way to say it. He's a friend of Pierre Polyev's. He'd been named, actually, as Pierre Polyev's new Canadian ambassador. And I don't know how he's going to do both jobs now, but in any event, he, he went in, ruffled a lot of feathers in the riding with people who uh, were already on the executive, etc. A bunch of them quit. And um, his uh, margin of victory, he still won, but the margin of victory was significantly reduced. The previous conservative had won by 17,000 votes. Kana won by 2,500. So, I mean, yes, it was a by-election, but the percentage was still, it was 21% before for the Liberal, this time it was 36. Um, so I think the message is be careful with your nominations because in a closer race, they could have lost this one, right, if you, if you upset people too much. So a heavy hand by the leader's office, not always the best thing. But the big news, really, and we can talk about this more, I think, was the Portage-Lisker one where Maxime Bernier um, really uh, brought a lot of the culture wars into play and the conservatives brought a lot of the conspiracy stuff into play so you had a lot of weird things 
they're going to trickle up, I fear, for the next federal election. Uh, Maxime Bernier out. What does this mean for him moving forward? Well, he really got trounced. He got 17 percent, which is less than uh, the uh, the PPC candidate got in that riding the last time around against Candace Bergen. So it does not look good on him. He's still saying he'll live to fight another day. But um, it really what, what this whole uh, exercise showed was that the PPC is going to be banking very heavily on issues that aren't actually federal issues, but things like um, transgender education or gender education in schools, what he calls moral and cultural degeneracy, the woke cult. Like you're going to have a lot of that sort of language being thrown and to provoke the conservatives, because part of the conservative base also has concerns around some of these issues and the PPC will want to steal them away. So they're going to have to respond somehow. Um, it'll be interesting to see how they sort of thread that needle. Uh, you talk about the nasty divisions to come. Many would say they're already here when you listen to question period and such. How much more nasty could it get? Well, it can get nasty. The, the nastiness here was on the right. That's what the interesting thing was. It wasn't nasty against the liberal candidate or the NDP in the riding. So you've got these splits happening. You're absolutely right. The liberals and the conservatives have nothing nice to say about each other, and there'll be a lot of fire back and forth. The question is, on the right side of the equation, um, how that plays out between the PPC and the conservatives. Um, You know, this whole business about never attending the World Economic Forum, that was a big issue in this campaign. I mean, is that a top of mind issue? Not really. Mm. Um, Most people don't care. But it was one of the big things that, you know, the the two um, leading contenders went head to head over. So weird stuff like this is going to come out. I think that actually will help the liberals because they will just point over to the right and go, they're not talking about the real issues, inflation, housing, you know, jobs, et cetera. I mean, Polyev does talk about those things. So he has to be careful not to fall into this trap that Bernier and the PPC are going to set to talk about a whole raft of other stuff that really has no relation to, in some cases, reality and most people's lives. Uh, Aaron O'Toole, obviously, on his last days in the House of Commons, has been giving the odd interview here and there, obviously spoke up last week and, and gave quite a passionate speech and, and saying how the Conservatives have to be more moderate if uh, if they want to win this election. Is this Pierre Polyevra's to lose, do you think? Um, I think it's it's hard to say because the government's really, I think it's the government's to lose in any case in an election like this, especially after this is their, you know, fourth, they're asking for a fourth mandate. It's a lot. Um, I think, though, uh, what O'Toole was saying was that exactly this, don't get caught in that trap. Because if you get caught in that trap, you help those guys. You end up fighting um, and looking extreme on one side, and that's not what you want to do. Um, there's also, as you pointed out, the issue of foreign interference and, and how that's going to play out and um, you know what, what, what impact that's going to have, what, what rules are going to be set. We don't know, um, but that has to be dealt with. I do agree with Jagmeet Singh on that. It, it has to be dealt with before the next vote. So that everyone feels comfortable with the results. Because the last thing you want is a, an election people don't respect, like in the United States, and talk about it being stolen and this kind of thing. We don't want that. So we've got to figure out going forward how to, to, to shine the sunlight and make sure that we, we're all confident in the results and that they have not been messed with. There's certainly been lots of examples, and even provincially, where uh, the Liberals have been end, uh, close to the end of their shelf life, and somehow Conservatives just shoot themselves in the foot and give the Liberals another mandate. Is there talk about that in the Conservative Party? Are they aware that it is theirs to lose? Well, I think that, yeah, there certainly is talk about it. Um, I think sort of the, the disgruntled middle, if you will, the center voters who feel that you know, on both sides, the Liberals and the Conservatives have both gone too far in a direction that they're not comfortable with. And it's really more a question of tone. And this is the thing, tone and topics 
you know, when, when Polyev sticks to his conversation around inflation and, um, you know, the cost of living, housing, these issues that do matter, then people listen and people go, yeah, yeah, that's, I agree with that stuff. It's when they veer off into all sorts of tangents about conspiracy theories and, and this sort of thing that that's where the, the centrist voter looks at this and goes, I, it's too crazy for me. I don't want to what, go there. And What kind yeah. of conspiracies? Well, Give me an example. Well, the LUEF is a big one, right? I mean, Polyev had put out a video during this by-election saying, I will never let any of my ministers go to the World Economic Forum. Well, that's quite a gatekeeping thing to say, first of all. It's kind of yes, it is a bit of a gatekeeper you know? statement, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's second. I mean, to me, you're saying, hi, okay, I don't want to be at the table. I want to let the conspiracy people do things for me. It's kind yeah. of ridiculous when you think about it. If you think it's a conspiracy, wouldn't you want to be actually there so you know what's going on? I, I mean, come on. I, yeah, but this is a... This is the kind of tangent they get lost in. It's not helpful. But I do think also the culture wars, as they're called in the U.S., will be part of this election. Um, issues of gender education in schools is a very hot-button issue right now. We've seen protests in Ottawa. We've seen at schools. We've seen the Muslim community in particular get very upset in Toronto and in Ottawa over some of the rules that schools are implementing around gender education. They're a traditional liberal voter base so far. Um, does this mean the conservatives will pick up those votes or will the conservatives alienate more centrist voters who say you're going too far on these things? You're going, you know, you're going into PPC territory. We don't like that. So it's a really strange issue because it's not even a federal issue. Education is provincial, which is what mm. Polyev has said so far. But I think still he's going to be baited on it by Maxime Bernier and Trudeau is going to use that and try and use that as a wedge. Only got a few seconds left. Uh, Tasha, is there an appetite for the center? Is that gone? No, I think there is an appetite for the center. It depends, though. You have to have something on offer, right? If there's nothing to vote for, then the center might just stay home and mm. wait for something else to come along. We'll see. Tasha Kierden with us, principal at Navigator, author of The Right Path. You can read her latest in the National Post, uh, Post talking about the uh, the fallout from the four federal by-elections that have come and gone. Tasha, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. You too. Uh, it is 5.51. It is 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. Welcome to the fun. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. If you got a last word, Matt would love to hear from you. 905-645-3221. Joining us now, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, you can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am well. How are you, Scott? So far, so good. Bo Levi Mitchell out. What are your thoughts uh, for the home opener? Well, uh, I tell you what. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, the, a the, big deep breath and then a pause. The cynical. Well, well, the cynical among us uh, uh, pointed out even before the season started that there is a reason, perhaps, the Calgary Stampeders decided that he was not their starter last year and moved on from him. Uh, that was not the hope and still isn't the hope of the Hamilton Ticats fans who hope and then the team who hope that he is, you know, just a guy who just has to get going again and find his rhythm. And, uh, it doesn't help of course, that he's going to be out for at least a game. Who knows? I mean, uh, it looked like it was a groin or something injury and those are, you know, those aren't necessarily great, especially when you've got to be moving laterally and side to side as much as a quarterback yeah. does. So, yeah. But here's the thing. Um, if you watch the Argo game on Sunday, uh, those who could take it till the end, if you're a Tiger fan, it. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and, and you see their new quarterback 
and you've looked around the league at times and seen other teams bring in new guys who turn into really good quarterbacks, sometimes I think it's fair to ask, you know, the Ticats, we were talking about this on my show last night, the Ticats have this habit of loving to grab onto guys who have been great elsewhere, Casey Printers or Jason Moss or mm. now Bo Levi Mitchell. I think I, I am excited, if I'm a Ticat fan, about the idea that Matt Schiltz, who I think has looked really good in spot duty, might get a game or two, or who knows, maybe more, to go out and play and be that guy. We They may stumble onto a really good quarterback here that has been stuck as a backup that maybe is better than a backup. And I, and, and, you know, and, and this is the CFL, Scott, I mean, you and I talked about this. Uh, it, it doesn't really matter until Labor Day. So this is these are practice games for all intents and purposes in the East. And you can see what Matt Schultz can do. I, I, am, I am very optimistic about this guy. I think that he may end up creating a bit of a quarterback controversy in town because I think he's going to play really well. That's my expectation, that he is going to play really well. And then you're going to have people saying, well, what do we do now with Bo Levi Mitchell when he comes back? He'll still play. You're paying him half a million dollars. And it's good to have two good quarterbacks. But I, I'm, I don't think this is the worst thing in the world for the Ticats. I think they may by being, be forced to discover something they haven't had a chance to do till now. So you talked about Labor Day, nothing counts till then, other than, of course, you need butts in the seats to pay your bills, yes. but I digress. Yes. Uh, can, you, can you see, uh, who, who do you think is going to be quarterback by Labor Day weekend? Do you think well, by Well, Paul Levi Mitchell will, as long as he's healthy. As I say, you're paying him half a million dollars. Uh, yeah. You're not paying him that to stand on the sideline, and you want to get him going, so you will give him every opportunity. However, and look, we're so far ahead of ourselves at this point, though, I, yeah. I mean... If, if, if by Labor Day he's back and he's still struggling and it starts to get into the serious part of the season, well, you know what, then we can have that discussion later. I think that's way too far down the road to even talk about. But I, as I say, I think that the opportunity that you're now going to be forced to give Matt Schiltz is going to be something that I kind of expect is going to work out really well. I think this guy's going to look good. I could, we could, Scott, we could be here next Monday and say, man, was I ever wrong on that one? He looked terrible. <laughs> but I, I like the way the guy plays. I like the way the guy has looked. He's just never really been given the ball and been told, go play and do your thing. And I, I'm, I'm really interested to see how he does. Who's on the show tonight? Uh, hey, we got a great story coming up. Have you ever heard about the Beatles drummer who disappeared? Uh, Pete Best? No. Or before that? After that. After that, we got a great story with a guy who has written a book about the vanishing Beatle. There was a guy, before they went on their world tour in 1964, the day before they left to go, Ringo Starr collapsed and they had to find someone to take his place because they couldn't cancel. There was a guy who was the drummer for the Beatles for 11 days and then vanished. And we're going to talk to the guy who's written a book on him trying to find him, traveled the world to try and find him. It's a great story. We're going to talk to him tonight. So clearly he didn't turn out to be a real famous drummer. Uh, He was a great session drummer um, in his, uh, Jimmy Nickel is the guy's name. He was a great session drummer. 
and uh, but and had some bands afterwards. But in all the years following his 11 days as a Beatle, at the very height of Beatlemania, apparently would never talk about it because he was always just thought of as that, well, you know, you were a Beatle and nothing else. And it was, you know, it, apparently that kind of fame is either wonderful or not so wonderful. And I guess he didn't <laughs> think it was so wonderful. All right. It's all coming up on the Scott Radley Show after the 6 o'clock news. Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Have a great one, Scott. All right, that's it for us. Thanks for listening. It's always greatly appreciated. And for the last word on the Titanic, we go to Mr. Lowe via email. My last hope, while we were all fascinated and curious of the loss of the Titanic over 100 years ago, it is finally time to let go of this relic of the uh, Gilded Age. It is time to let the ship and its 1,500 lost lives in its sinking rest in peace once and for all. We have poked, prodded, photographed, and robbed this ship since 1985. Leave it now alone, Mr. Lowe. Keep right except to pass. Nighty night. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com.